the Digital Society podcast brings together leading journalists, politicos, and key policy influencers to explore the impact technological change is having in the UK and across the world. And it's hosted by Atos Senior Vice President for Strategy and Communications, Kulver cool Ranger. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Digital Society podcast. My name is Kulvir Ranger. I'm Senior Vice President for Strategy and Communication in the UK and Global Head for Strategy and Communication in Financial Services and Insurance for Atos. And as ever, this podcast looks at it from the angle of business leaders, journalists, politicos, key influencers to explore the challenges presented in this brave new world of technology, digital technology. It's shaping almost everything around us. And, and we look at those questions that say, well, what does it mean for us? What does it mean from a business perspective? And how do we take more people with us as this change happens? And I've been delighted today to be joined by someone whose work I have been reading uh, and uh, watching her career um, rapidly expand, um, Rhiannon Williams. Rhiannon, thank you so much for joining me, who's currently the technology correspondent for the I newspaper, uh, and she has been since 2016, um, but also uh, has spent time at The Telegraph and at the BBC. So really the bastion of some of our media outlets in the UK. Rhiannon, delighted for you to join us today. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. And look, Rhiannon, we're, we're going to get straight into it because let's say, look, We've, we've entered into 2022 already and it seems like no time at all and the year is shooting past but you've been looking at some of the key trends around what's important for us and what's emerging in, from a technology perspective at a, at a lightning pace right as soon as we say it it already seems old but and we're going to sort of have a bit of a conversation of what's happening in different areas but let's start off with us you know, Joe and Jane blogs, if I can still use that terminology, the average person who probably has a fair bit of tech now in their lives. What do you see really coming, sort of hitting us between the eyes in this year that's coming out in the technology front? It's a very good question. And I think one of the major things that you're going to keep hearing about again and again and again throughout 2022, a little bit like you were probably overloaded hearing about it in the sort of tail end of 2021, is the metaverse, the kind of web 3.0, 3D digital spaces that we're supposed to be spending our lives in, not only sort of socializing, entertaining, but also learning, working, and uh, all sorts of other kind of activities if uh, the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, et cetera, have their way. So the metaverse is is kind of the first big major trend for 2022, I'd say. That's really interesting because you know, for someone like me, who for decades has, you know, uh, let be honest, uh, let's be honest, I'm a bit of a nerd and I've been fascinated <laughs> by sci-fi. And, and, and the metaverse is a version of, you know, things that we probably saw in the original Matrix things that you know the virtual world there was a there was a film called the lawnmower man for those who haven't seen it look it up it's yeah. a, you have it it's well, a bit old and creaky but it talks yeah. about a, a, a vr world um and it's interesting is it sort of you know life imitating sci-fi which has happened many times for those of us who are fanatics of uh, things like star trek you know mobile phones and all of that mm -hmm. that emerged but do you think we're now entering into that that sense of we will start to live partial lives in these virtual environments it's 
So that is exactly what the likes of Facebook would uh, would have you believe is going to become very commonplace. So, as you know, the, the sort of origins of the metaverse do come from a sci-fi novel that was purely um, fictional. And uh, over time, lots of technologists tend to be huge sci-fi fans and they kind of incorporate those ideas that they might have read or watched in films and sort of put their, you know, considerable expertise and intelligence and resources, especially if you work for the major sort of big tech, into making them a reality. And weirdly, every now and again, that really can happen. So virtual reality is, is a really good example, and that goes hand in hand with the metaverse. And a lot of discussions about the metaverse are commonly conflated with VR. So lots of things that people are claiming at the moment, like, oh, we're doing the first uh, computer lecture in, in the metaverse or the first sort of, um, you know, mass conference in the metaverse. It's not really the metaverse. You're just wearing a virtual reality headset. But I can see why that confusion is there. The sort of easy way to remember what the metaverse is and what it isn't is it's a little bit like the Internet insofar as you, you might not be using it, but it's still there. So the metaverse exists when you're not tapped into it is, is kind of the easiest distinction. So we're going to see more companies investing more money in creating these digital spaces, trying to encourage people to spend time in them. Like we've seen major companies kind of exhibit just in the last few weeks alone, sort of showcase videos of what it would be like to shop in the metaverse, to socialize in the metaverse. And they tend to be pretty cringe, um, quite crudely sort of constructed videos that don't really tell you a great deal about what the scenario will really be like. So there's a lot of scepticism um, at the moment, lots of cynicism. There's some elements that could be very cool and very beneficial, but at the moment it really does seem that it's a very exclusive section of people at the moment that would have the time, resources or money um, to invest a lot of time in the metaverse, but we could see that open up in the future. At the moment, it's still highly theoretical. It, it's, it really does. It's making my brain whir because um, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking about things like, uh, obviously, there was some news stories recently about gamers, mm. because obviously the gaming has been a huge part of the maybe, you know, metaverse 1.0, where people are on mm. these virtual platforms and engaging uh, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm several generations too old to be engaged in online gaming at the moment, but my nieces and nephews and a lot of younger people, or maybe, you know, other people as well, are spending a lot of time as full-time gamers as well, uh, which is creating that economic model around it. But um, I also look at, obviously, through, and we can't ignore it, it has to be said, the pandemic, uh, the mm. change that has, has come in, and the platforms that we had to use as well, in terms of conferencing and being part of broader conferences which became entirely virtual and felt like they were virtual with audiences with speakers on stages that you sort of went into and, and I'm gonna say it did remind me because obviously as you said it was quite clunky at the moment it can it can mm -hmm. seem a bit um, you know almost uh, back to the days of Commodore 64 graphics a PC that I used to own <laughs> and that'll date me um, but you know, I, I, I could see the sort of block graphics and things that were sort of chugging along. And even it reminds me of a, of a game called Elite that used to be mm -hmm. about exploring the universe. And, and it almost feels like we've got a bit of full circle. We're coming back to those things where, which were right at the start of the emergence of personal computing, where people was 
creative juices we're exploring mm. what might happen and we're coming back to it where it can almost be the, a reality yeah i mean that's that's a very astute sort of observation and it is true you used to see in the very early 80s when home gaming was sort of really taking off you'd see things like power glove and it had these sort of tactile sensors in it and the whole point of that was you know you can control certain elements in the game and that's We've seen a sort of the second version of that with virtual reality, but it's it's worth kind of pointing out that a lot of the the major virtual reality um, sort of platforms. There was a point in 2016 when the three major ones, as they were then, sort of Sony's PlayStation VR, you had the HTC Vive and um, Oculus Rift, and they were all sort of competing with each other really quite fiercely for that sort of very very engaged market share saying you know who's going to make the best games the best experiences and even with sony's might and the amount of money that they invested into playstation vr and you know very proven track record of making very successful games it's virtual reality still didn't quite take off in the way that i think a lot of analysts and technologists were anticipating at the time it's been a slow burn you've still got people that really do care about it Mainstream, not so much. So I think the metaverse, it's a good kind of primer for the metaverse, really. If gaming is your first introduction into spending time in virtual spaces that are very immersive, that's the whole point. You're supposed to not necessarily believe that it is real, but you are supposed to be fully kind of engaged in what's around you, hence the sort of the headsets and, you know, tactile sensors that you can wear as well. But the point of the metaverse is they, they want to say it's beyond gaming. It's, you know, you're going to have work conferences there. You're going to shop there. You're going to do all these other everyday activities beyond gaming. So real sort of mainstream appeal stuff. But the sort of considerations that come with that, is it really easier for you to, you know, for you and I, and if we had colleagues around the world who were joining in with this conversation to strap on headsets and, you know, have a meeting in a virtual space instead of just speaking on Zoom? You know, the, the sort of friction that comes with some of these experiences suggests that it's not always the reason why they didn't sort of necessarily take off in the first place might be barriers to do with technology. It might be cost, but it might be it's a bit of a hassle. And when you create really digital immersive experiences, you automatically exclude people that might not be able to afford the headset. You might have older people that would struggle with seeing it as necessary like why can't we talk on the phone why can't we see each other space face to face and then again with any kind of digital space there comes regulation there's problems with ethics there's sexual harassment there's all these other kind of really important aspects that tend to be overlooked when it comes to exciting virtual new developments and that all these considerations which take a lot of time to comb through and perfect and refine it takes a long time so i you know you, you can be optimistic about these things while still being very very aware of their shortcomings i think yeah no, I, I completely agree with you and uh, uh, uh you know not that i'm starting to show i'm also a film geek because uh, it reminds me of ready player one which yeah. uh yeah, you know that, that I, I never picked it up when it first came out but i watched it a little while back and i thought yeah you know i can see where where that is projecting and i've always loved mm how films project, as you say, and then, you know, people pick up on the great concepts and ideas. Um, mm. Even something like 2001 Space Odyssey, which, you know, was made in, I think, Kubrick's masterpiece from 69. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're still mimicking things like that. And how and supercomputing 
and the power that you acquire for, of computing was always the key part of how mm -hmm. do we get there. Um, but I think I just on one point before we move on what it means for from for us. Um, what about commerce and shopping? Because we've seen this, you know, really flip. It was always moving towards online and increasing share of online shopping, but obviously uh, people being at home has really pushed that. We know the impact that's had on yeah. the shopping centers, the malls, the high streets and the shops and everything else. How, how do you see that continuing to, to evolve? Because I'll put my hand up. The other day I went back into the shops to <laughs> sort of look to maybe purchase something. And part of me felt really great to be able to touch and feel product and, you know, clothes and whatever else it was. Part of me had this nagging feeling in the back of my mind that said, oh, if I looked at this online, I'd find at least 20 or 30 different versions of what I want rather than the two or three that I can see in front of me. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a really good way of looking at it, because shopping is obviously we know that e-commerce is getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. You don't have to be Amazon to be trying to get a sort of chunk of it, but it helps. But it's an interesting kind of journey that that the relationship that's gone sort of hand in hand with with shopping and technology, because not even that long ago, it would have seemed if you were to make an online purchase, you'd you know, you pull out your laptop or maybe a tablet. The thought of doing it on a phone would feel quite weird because you'd be you know, sort of battling against a smaller screen. You might not feel as comfortable. Um, with the way that the app might have made the the sort of site look it was quite a sort of it, it felt I remember sort of thinking this at the time it felt almost risky it didn't really feel like you were going through the proper channels doing it on your phone now you wouldn't think twice about it especially the fact that you know you can save your card information use Apple Pay whatever it is you just ping through it it's really quick so I suppose the next sort of natural evolution in that kind of stage is is working out those sort of points at which people feel most comfortable making purchases and fundamentally what they're buying, like you say, there, there is a thing as too much choice and that can get really, really overwhelming. And that can sort of pose a lot of difficulties when, when you buy online as well and you can easily end up buying stuff from pretty disreputable um, websites and different various sellers and stuff you get a bit carried away and it's just easy to do sometimes that sort of bricks and mortar experience is a bit more fulfilling but it yeah it really does depend what it is I, I for example I hate buying clothes online because I find I have to endlessly end up returning them so I may as well have gone to the shop in the first place and seen what the fit like seen what the colors like the materials like those kind of things are hard to replicate online which is partly why the sort of metaverse push is saying we'll make it much easier to envisage what you'll look like in that particular coat or you can really get up close and realize that the fabric is uh, you know it's shinier than it first appeared or it's a slightly different shade of blue that kind of thing you can replicate these kind of experiences more faithfully digitally than you would have had to been able to do previously but I think yeah the the evolution of shopping and and kind of the the items or product services that you're looking to buy how successful they are in the next sort of digital realm will depend very much on what the product is and also how urgently you need it because sometimes even Amazon can't deliver on time and you've got to go to the shops yeah, no. even Amazon can't get it to you on time. <laughs> even them. I, I think you're, you're really right to highlight, you know, some of the things that the barriers of tactileness 
the, the, the that sense of how do we touch, feel, smell almost, you mm. know, when, when we can get a metaverse experience that starts to sort of diminish those requirements for us as human beings, maybe that's that's where we start heading because I was at the final point on this, um, furniture, you know, it, it, mm. it, or any sort of large item bookcase, whatever it may be, that sense of how do you gauge what is the quality of the item you're looking to purchase? And at the moment, um, it feels that it could be reviews where people are, mm. you know, looking at a sort of, then, but then you've got to trawl through immense amounts of information, even though they're summarizing, but, you know, you, you still want to review some of that data. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it's a price point. You, you can yeah. only really tell, you know, the level of quality by sort of looking at a price point, which seems yeah. that we've still got some maturity to go there. And and I think maybe we're seeing an acceleration on that because obviously this shift to online from um, the e-commerce model, understanding the data points that are whole, really important to the consumer to understand whether they're gonna make that buying decision. I don't know if you've seen that sort of evolving faster than than it was previously. I think that element of it definitely is, yeah. Furniture purchasing is an, is an interesting one you mentioned because I think the the idea, you know, notion for a lot of younger people of going to a sort of furniture warehouse would be completely foreign. You, you would buy your furniture online. But then, you know, you're having to check the dimensions quite carefully. You know, you're taking the risk of it looking horrendous. It's, it's hard to see. So, yeah, I know IKEA was sort of really pioneered a lot of augmented reality apps to try and place the furniture in your home you get a sense of you know how would it look in that uh, particular room because it sort of works out the dimensions using the data points but even those apps aren't always perfect they can fail quite quickly and you know you end up with <laughs> sort of a, a dresser or a wardrobe that's 10 times the size but those yeah that sort of the guarantee of quality and the review element is very interesting too because I don't know about you I read any kind of product or service I will read the reviews either of the product or you know the website I'm buying it from whoever and you know I'll look at the good ones try and get a sort of rough sense of what's good but I'll also read the negative ones to see yeah. you know what is it that people are pulling out is it the customer service is it the supply chain is it the fact that the product looked nothing like they said it was going to or it's fake all of these things are, are, are huge considerations when you are buying something online and you've kind of got to juggle all of these decisions and these judgments before you part with your money and, and that as a consumer can be quite exhausting so you know the brands that are going to going to sort of handle that best and to take the sort of guesswork out of the equation are the ones that are going to get the most sort of the, the best kind of customers or you know the best kind of repeat customers because sometimes businesses can build you know empires and still have horrendous customer service. It's just because people go, oh, well, I either felt there wasn't another option or because something else you do outweighs the fact that your delivery takes four months and you don't tell me when it's canceled, that kind of thing. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because it wasn't there the lady who bought what she thought was a really good bargain garden set. <laughs> and when it arrived, it was actually a miniature garden set. That's why oh, the price is uh, those stories uh, are great yeah. oh, what a playstation box instead of an actual playstation yes like, yes, yeah, yes. And, and what i find is i know many people share this is that i end up as you say going through that sort of draining process i find i'm, I'm just hung i don't i can't make the buying decision then 
because I'm getting so much data and so many variables and I just log off and go off and do something else and wait another couple of weeks till I'm urgently required to make that purchase if it is urgently required. I know. Coming then moving on from that sort of front end side of things, how about from a more business side? Where where do you see the challenges for business this year or what's coming up on the business agenda from the tech perspective? Business agenda, that's a good one. I suppose the sort of uh, the kind of ongoing arguments around it depends on the old kind of business, but the sort of NFT space, the kind of blockchain arguments we're seeing in lots of different aspects of business banking as well. How you secure that and look sort of stable for for customers, your consumers is that's a really sort of interesting space that we're going to see evolve a lot. I'd say. Yeah, I think I think you've mentioned it already a couple of times about the the payment platforms, the ease, the safeties, the security. You know, we we as a business have a huge involvement with a number of uh, global banking institutions. We support them. Um, we we manage and support and run you know the infrastructure for NSNI Bank in the UK um, and lots of insurance businesses as well. We've we've seen that tipping point. I think has been achieved where from a consumer and a customer perspective there's an acceptance of online servicing. And now it's a question of who can really um, evolve their operational organization to deliver the better or the newer services that customers and consumers can be wowed by. Um, But it's all interlinked between can you evolve your operational structures, your organizational structures, uh, your historic and legacy infrastructure to be Mm. able to move fast? Because what's happening, obviously, is the digital natives in the environment, especially, say, in finance, those those uh, challenger banks are their brands are reaching critical mass and they're Mm. starting to really eat away at some of the bigger established organizations, which which their brands play a huge part in, obviously, trust in financial services. So I, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking maybe a lot of change around the CX side of things for financial institutions. Um, you know, we, we can see more, pe- more of those organizations wanting it, but the pace now really quickening to deliver it. Absolutely. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. There are two sides of this. You want the the kind of legacy institution that's respected and it's trusted and people know that they can, you know, might have had bank account, for example, for, for years, decades, generations, sometimes with the same institutions. And that goes a long way for a certain kind of customer. But as you say, different customers who who could be younger might be more attracted to the agility. Uh, that's a buzzword you always say the agility of the younger challenger banks for example you know they they're very used to using them in house shares for example or just being able to transfer each other money very very quickly like in the US you know they always Venmo each other whereas in the UK you'd say on Monzo you know split a bill very easily four ways that kind of thing people have certainly younger people have, have come to sort of expect and take for granted so ideally, you want to marry the two. You either want to be an older, more established business um, that has the prestige and transform yourself, as you say, in a in a way that will attract sort of younger customers and be capable in a sort of digital first sort of consumer mindset. Or if you're one of the younger um, sort of startup type businesses, you want to build the trust that the older businesses have. So. 
ideally, yeah, you want to marry the two. It's easier said than done. But I think we'll see more of, as it was, using banking as an example, we'll see more of the older institutions adopt those sort of agile processes. And what we need to see from challenger banks for them to really succeed is for younger customers to use them as their primary bank account. And we need to see that generational shift because that was a bit of stasis for years. People had, you know, a Monzo, for example, or Starling, but they weren't using them as their primary bank account. They still had Lloyd's, NatWest, HSBC, whoever. So that is the sort of tipping point that we'll need to reach for those challenger banks to become as ubiquitous among a certain uh, sort of, you know, customer demographic as they are among older ones but it's it's I think we're reaching the point where that really is going to become a major consideration especially if you're an older business you're going to want to be seen as making those digital decisions yeah. that make people's lives easier and it's not just about having a neon colored card anymore is it <laughs> although that does sign, signify that you are accepting this new world and you're at the the edge of it it seems whenever you open and someone's well if they have a wallet anymore now it's all integrated into their phone but yeah. there we go move so fast um so <laughs> if, if we move on to say the third element of this for the year from a sort of i was going to say from a media perspective but probably from an influencer perspective because we're all influencers now uh, aren't we? <laughs> um so how, how do you see how do you see the year from a media influencer perspective Oh, to be influential. Um, yeah, the me that is a really interesting one, particularly in the UK, um, because recently the Advertising Standards Agency, so the ASA, are really clamping down on influencers. And I'd say sort of influencers as a whole kind of get cleaved into three, you know, you're, you're kind of one of three sections. You're either the golden elite, so you're kind of, you know, you're Joe Wicks, you're Taylor, it seems, if if you're into Australian fitness gurus or David Beckham, Holly Willoughby, they're kind of those two, for example, they're more sort of traditional celebrities that have very cleverly leveraged that fame and the fact that people really like them to start shilling products online. And it works very, very well. It's very effective. So you're either an A-grade influencer, you're a micro-influencer. So you might only have you know, 10 to 50,000 followers, but you've got uh, probably like very, very well versed in a particular niche. You might be really good at calligraphy or you teach people how to make films on their iPads or you, you know, overdub adverts with silly voices, whatever it is. A little bit like podcasts, people tend to get really into these things. And if they really like your content, they'll keep coming back. You might not have a huge audience, but you've probably got a lot of engagement and quite a lot of sway in that respect. So you've got the mega influencers, the micro influencers, but in the middle is the sort of troublesome part. And they kind of tend to consist a lot of sort of former or current reality TV stars who don't necessarily have the kind of niche that their former colleagues might have had. They might not have diversed into um, podcasting or writing about parenting or sports commentary or mental health advocacy. These are all kind of avenues that we've seen people from those kind of backgrounds go into and go on to be very successful. But generally, if you don't have that niche, you're probably best known for posting lots of photos to Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whatever it is, and sort of primarily promoting services or brands and you might not always be declaring 
those posts as the adverts they are. So to go back to my original point, that's what the Advertising Standards Agency here in the UK are really, really clamping down on. And they're now publishing sort of name and shame lists of the influencers that they've contacted and said, um, you know, those posts were adverts. You had, you know, a paid vested interest to advertise them. You didn't declare it as an advert. And they either ignored that advice or they originally said, oh, yeah, sorry about that. And then they did it again. So the ASA is making a making a big point of kind of saying these are the people that you need to keep an eye out for in so far as what they're, you know, what they're promoting to you. They're not being honest about it. How much the audiences care about this remains to kind of be seen. But it's a very sort of tricky kind of ground. If that is how you make your living, you probably want to be quite careful. Yeah, look, it's riveting to see it evolve right before our eyes, isn't it? And mm-hmm. I, I never thought about, as you've demonstrated, about the level, you know, the golden circles and the golden elite you mentioned. Um, yeah, and, and and how people are really commoditizing and commercializing their 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 power and their influence. But yeah, and and obviously it's all content, content, content. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you say, if it's not a topic or subject matter that they're talking about, then it feels it's them in a location um <laughs> generally tend to be very nice hot warm locations yeah, it's uh, yeah. but look so I, th- I think we've we've cantered through with quite a bit of stuff there you know lot, mm-hmm. lots that you could see probably happening both from from the metaverse side of things from the commercial uh, commerce side of things business and and influencing um, I'm going to come. I always tend to sort of bring this together on, and focus on my guest. That's you, Rhiannon. <laughs> and so no. I say, look, we're, to end with two quick, quick questions that oh, right. used to used to sound a bit more cutting edge than they are now, because now I think about them, they seem to be a bit more 20th and 21st century. But the first one is, in terms of media, mm. how are you currently digesting your media? So, you know, obviously some people still buy newspapers, uh, some look at it via online or or look at read online or whether it's just radio, so many new radio channels and TV. What's, what's your main go to to get your media fix of what's going on? How do you digest it? My go to is a good question, because obviously uh, I work for a newspaper, so I do read rival newspapers. Um, I probably don't watch as much tv news as i should i watch the odd bit but obviously get a lot of my kind of general news from twitter um tiktok actually depending on what the what the given subject is is really really good for news i listen to a lot of podcasts they're kind of better for topical deep dives maybe but in terms of sort of like top line what can i see what's going on in the world obviously skimming through i've got lots of rss feeds for general Tech topics, obviously, is my specialism. So I'd be reading those primarily, but general news as well. Um, So lots of different sort of digital ways to read news mixed in with a bit of, um, yeah, a bit of newspapers. I start every day with Radio 4 before moving on to Radio 2 because it's the best. Um, So, yeah, real, real sort of broad mix there, I suppose. But I am a journalist, so. What do you expect? No, I'm sure our listeners will be interested, especially from journalists, because it's kind of, you know, how do those who are broadcasting um, get their their impact and their information yeah. from? So thanks. Thanks for sharing. And the other, the other final question is so and I think I may know where you're going, where you'll be on this. I have a sort of scale of one to ten, whether right. one being your full techno sort of um, phobe. You don't buy the latest stuff. You know, you kind of wait till you have to to get something. And then techno geek. 
you're there in the queue outside. I won't name the store. I'm sure everyone knows which store when the latest new version of a tablet or phone comes out. Where do you where do you place yourself on the one to ten? That is a really good question, you know, because I'd say before I was a tech journalist, my phone was probably an average of about five years old. It was really, really slow. Um, it wasn't quite like cracked screen bad, but it, it certainly wasn't that cutting edge. Um, but obviously with my job, I do a lot of reviews as well. So I'll be sort of testing anything um, generally really quite new at any given time. But it's it's an interesting kind of position because I'm also a diehard cynic, which makes me sort of think very carefully um, about the things that I do spend money on, the companies that you are supporting by spending that money. So on a scale of sort of from technophobe on one hand, which I wouldn't say I am because I can use, you know, all of the various bits and pieces, apart from Snapchat, never got into that. Um, but techno geek, I'd probably say, obviously, given the role, given my job, I'm firmly at the techno geek end, but from a sort of personal, cynical perspective, possibly more towards the middle. So if I had to sort of slap a number on myself, um, ally your scale, I'd say maybe an eight. An eight, okay. That, listen, uh, really interesting to understand that you've got to have these two horses to ride, your personal <laughs> horse and your, 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 your professional horse. But look, Rhiannon Williams, technology correspondent for the iNewspaper, Thank you so much for joining me in this edition of the Digital Society podcast. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and I'm hoping actually that we could talk again near the end of the year or early next year to sort of see you know, what we were looking back on. And, and I'm sure it'd be remarkable as, as time always demonstrates, things change faster than we can even imagine. But Rhiannon, That's thank great. you for being my guest. Pleasure, lovely to meet you. To learn more about the podcast or suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please contact us at digitalsociety at atos.net or visit the Atos website.